don't take this as a recommendation from me, but there was a movie made about 15 years ago, maybe, called Talladega Nights. Will Ferrell plays a NASCAR driver. Well, there's this scene in the movie that always stuck with me where the family gathers around the table for dinner and prays. And it's a, it's a long, drawn-out scene where they're trying to pray. Ricky, who is the main character, he's leading grace, and he begins to pray to baby Jesus. And he goes on and on about baby Jesus. But then, one by one, the family begins to interrupt the prayer with their own ideas about Jesus. And it becomes a big conflict. To which Ricky replies, when you pray, you pray to whichever Jesus you want. But I like the baby version the best. Now that, of course, is irreverent. It's ridiculous. But it's pretty insightful as well. Because for 2,000 years now, people have been doing something just like that. People have been taking the very real, very historical person of Jesus and then kind of shaping him or fashioning him more like what we want him to be or more like what suits us the best. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church where this picture hung somewhere on the wall. Almost every church had this on the wall somewhere, right? Look at that gorgeous head of hair. This is Jesus. This is the portrait of Jesus that a lot of us, when we close our eyes and try to imagine Jesus, this is what we see. Well, here's the deal. Nobody really knows what Jesus actually looked like. But most certainly, he didn't look like that. He was a Middle Eastern man. And Isaiah tells us, in Isaiah 53, that there was nothing about Jesus in his, in his physical appearance, nothing about his appearance that we would be attracted to him. He wasn't, apparently, an especially handsome or attractive person. That wasn't his appeal. But if we're honest, it's just easier to think of Jesus as kind of an ideal version of ourselves. And that, that portrait does a great job. That if I'm, a, if I'm an American, well, Jesus looks like an American here. And he looks strong, but he also looks soft and tender. He, he's, he's kind of the ideal man, the ideal savior. It, it's just, it's easier, it's more natural for me to picture Jesus like that portrait does. Or how about this? When I was a teenager, there was this huge movement called WWJD. Everybody had a WWJD bracelet on. And it stood for, what would Jesus do? The design was this, that when we make decisions, when we're, especially if we're going to make a sinful, potentially a sinful decision, we look down at the bracelet and we ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And that's a fine question, of course. But I can tell you guys for a fact that when I made decisions as a teenager, even with the bracelet on, if I even asked the question at all, I probably just guessed as to what the answer would be. What would Jesus do? Well, I just made up my own answer or made up my own best guess. And it just so happened that my best guess aligned pretty closely with what I wanted to do anyway. Now, that's on me, of course, but I'm just, what I'm talking about is human nature. Human nature, that if we're left to ourselves, we will take Jesus and kind of shape him or try to shape him 
into something that looks more like me, more like us. We all fall into that same trap from time to time. And that's why it's so necessary that we spend time as Christians in the Gospels with regularity, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we are looking into the Gospels, not just because they're in the Bible, but because they give us first-hand eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. We get to see his life from every angle, including the things about Jesus that are hard for us to understand, and even including things about Jesus that we might not really like. You know, if we, if we read through the Gospels long enough, we're going to find places, things that Jesus did or things that he said that are very abrasive to us, that don't really fit with the image that we like to have about him. That happens to me too. And so to read the Gospels, we discover Jesus is not like what we often make him to be in our own estimation. He will not be pinned down. He will not be boxed in. And so for us, as a church, we always want to be taking these questions to heart. Who is Jesus really? And what does it really mean to know him and to follow him? And if we're going to ask those questions, then at least in my mind, there's no clearer and more wonderful picture than the gospel accounts, and specifically the gospel of John. And so today, we're going to begin walking through John's gospel and we're going to study through the whole thing. I might have a few wrinkles added uh, on by the end of our journey through John, but it's going to be, I know, a fruitful and joyful journey for us to walk through this gospel and to see Jesus as he is. And so look with me at John chapter 1. As you open up to John chapter 1, before we read, I do want to make mention of who John is. Uh, and this will come up more as we go because John is featured in the gospel. He was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And uh, there are times where we see he's referred to as the beloved disciple, which is an interesting title there. Um, that John is the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loves. Uh, when we come to that, I guess we can talk more about why that was. And we don't know this for sure. I can't say with certainty, but I feel fairly confident that John was probably a teenager when Jesus initially called him to be his follower, when John and his brother James were called out of the boat to leave their father Zebedee and to follow Christ. He would have probably been a very young man at that point. Well, now he's an old man. Many years later, John is writing as an eyewitness, reflecting on his own uh, witness his own experience with Jesus, and of course the fuller understanding of who Jesus is, not just the practical details of what he did. And in fact, John makes this known as to why this gospel is written. Why did the Holy Spirit guide John to write the words he wrote? Well, he actually tells us. We're not always given a clear purpose statement in the books of the Bible, but John gives us one. At the end of the gospel, or near the end in John chapter 20, he tells us, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing 
you may have life in his name. And so everything we read in this gospel, beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, all of it serves an ultimate goal. Faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that we might have life in his name. John is not aiming low. John is not interested in trivialities, in in throwaway details. There's none of that in this book. John is giving us a clear picture of Jesus Christ, top to bottom, inside and out, beginning to end. And in fact, it's interesting when I say beginning to end, look at how John's gospel starts. John chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to look at five verses this morning. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John's gospel doesn't begin in the way we might expect, in the way that the other gospels begin. We don't see in John the birth of Jesus with Mary and Joseph in the manger. We don't see uh, Jesus' genealogy, his family tree. We don't drop in at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us Jesus from those angles, but John literally begins in the beginning. And those are the first three words of the gospel. In the beginning, he writes. And y'all, that right there, before we do anything else, it's meant to get our gears turning. Where else in the Bible do we see that phrase? In the beginning. It's the very first sentence. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there should be no mistaking right away what John is doing here as he writes. He's, He's reframing the big story, the ultimate story. And it's not a different story. John's not changing anything at all. He's simply showing us the fullness of what we can't see in Genesis 1 unless we also see John 1. There's a fullness taking place here. And so John does not just simply recreate. He doesn't say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We already know that. He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we find out a few verses down who the Word is. It's Jesus. So why doesn't John just tell us that? I mean, why would John begin his gospel so cryptically? Uh, Why wouldn't, instead of saying the Word, why couldn't he just say in the beginning was Jesus? And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Well, obviously, John has purposes in this. And, and two primary purposes, I think, as we uh, look at the first verse of, of this gospel. 
Um, one was maybe, uh, could be considered more uh, widely cultural. Uh, John is writing primarily to Greek-speaking people. He writes his letter in the Greek language, which was the dominant language of the day. And as, as John writes to the Greek world, he uses this Greek term for word. When we see in the beginning was the word, capital W, that term, that's the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's where we get our English word logic from. And in the time of the New Testament, there was a, a popular Greek philosophy, the Stoics, the, the primary f- uh, philosophers of the day, they had the big question that everybody has. What do we, how do we make sense of the world and our place in it? Every culture, every religion, everybody has to ask and, and give some answer to that question. What do we make of the world and our place in it? Well, here was the Greek philosopher's answer. There is a higher order to things. Something that they called the logos. That was their word for it. And it was an impersonal thing in their minds. They didn't call it God. They didn't believe that it was necessarily personal. But yet it was still very real. This logos makes sense of everything. It holds everything together. The creation, order, the governing force of the universe... That was what they called the logos. And so there, they said, is where we find all reason, all logic. Everything that is, including our own souls and our purpose, our morality, all wisdom, all the fundamental things of life, all the essential questions are tied up together in the logos. Well, here comes John right out of the gate saying, in the beginning was the Lagos, the Word. And the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos is God. In other words, John is saying, the reason for the universe, the order, the explanation for all things, is not an abstract idea. It's not an it. It's a person. And that person has a name. There is logic and order and purpose in everything because there is a divine word, John says, and his name is Jesus. He's flipping the entire philosophical system upside down in verse 1. Yes, there is order. Yes, there is an explanation. Yes, there is reason and logic and wisdom and goodness and all the fundamental things that make up life. But it's not an it. It's a he. It's a him. And he has a name. He is Jesus, the Son of God. And this Jesus, John tells us here, he is eternal. He has always been. He was with God in the beginning. You could translate that as he was facing God. It's a statement of not just proximity, that they were close, but that he was in intimate relationship with God the Father from eternity past. And moreover, John doesn't stop there. He says the word was God. And y'all, throughout the centuries, people have bent over backward to try to deny what John just said in an attempt to deny the divinity of Jesus. He was a man. 
or perhaps he was an angel. He's some sort of creation of God, but he, we can't let him hold that highest place. People have tried to deny it from the beginning, but we don't even get through the first verse of the gospel without John stating it clearly. There is no ambiguity or confusion here. What God is, the Word also is. Jesus is not a creation of God. Jesus is not similar to God. He's not a God among many. Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul affirms this in his letter to the Philippians. Paul says, Jesus is in very nature God. Paul also told the Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews, we're told Jesus is the uh, radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus himself said this, and we'll see it on down the line in John. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so I, let's, let's take a breath right here. And let's acknowledge together what I hope has already become plain. Whatever concept of Jesus we hold in our minds is probably too small. Starting with me, whatever image, whatever ideas we have about Jesus that we uh, think of him and admire him and look to him, there's a good chance that we're thinking too small. And, and my assumption, because I know it's true about me, my assumption is for a lot of us, we look to Jesus in a noble way. We admire him. We want to imitate him. Sure. But John, right out of the gate, is establishing not admiration merely, not imitation merely, but worship. And that's where we're meant to begin. When we think of Jesus, when we look to Jesus, as we esteem Jesus, it's with a heart of worship because he is God. And so when John calls Jesus the logos, the word, it means on one hand that Jesus is the God who is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the explanation for everything. He existed uh, before the creation of the universe. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anything. Nobody created him. He's God. But there's also a very personal aspect to this. It's not just big philosophical and theological thinking that John has in mind here. It's meant to be personal. When John calls Jesus the Word, he also means that Jesus is the true revelation of God to us. He's not just God in the macro sense that we look up into the heavens and imagine what he's like, but he's actually revealed God to us personally. He is the Word of God. And we know this to be true in our own relationships. You can't really get to know a person until that person has spoken. And more than that, until they've spoken with you, until there's personal relationship. Always when a person 
is quiet and kind of off to himself, we say he's mysterious. Who is he really? We don't know. Because our words are what reveal who we really are. Our words connect us with one another and create relationship. And this is certainly true of God. When we see Jesus as the Word, capital W, we're meant to see Jesus as God's great self-expression. When God desires to make himself known to the world, to us, when God expresses desire to relate to us with intimacy in a personal way, God can do no better than to put forth his Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't know us, and we don't know God in the abstract only. It's not meant to be that way. In Jesus Christ, we get God's word. We get his revelation of who he really is. And there are, in in this little section that we're reading today, there are three specific ways that Jesus reveals God to us. Uh, I I got these from D.A. Carson, by the way. These three words that show up in the next three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. Jesus shows himself, reveals himself in creation, in revelation, and in salvation. Look look at what I mean here. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 3, John says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything that exists is because of Jesus. And this takes us back to Genesis 1 again, that when we see the account of the creation, God speaks everything into being. He says, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a separation between the water and the dry land. Let there be vegetation that springs forth from the ground and bears its seed. All of that happened powerfully because of the word of God that created. And and John connects the dots for us here. By God's divine word, all things were made. And now we clearly see what Genesis 1 was telling us. Jesus is the word. God's agent in creating all things. It's Jesus. There's nothing in creation that does not owe itself to Christ. Everything's got his fingerprints on it. He made it. And he has revealed God to us. He has revealed himself to us through his creation. Then in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, the, the word here is revelation. Um, because it's clear that we're, when, when John says in Jesus was life, we're not just talking about biological life. He's already established that in verse 3. And when he says he's the light of men, that's not just physical light. It's a kind of life and light that exist in the person of Jesus and are bestowed upon us. And here's what I think John is is getting at. Jesus created all things, yes, but he has given a special love and a special purpose to us. As human beings, we are created in the image of God. No other part of creation gets to claim that title, that dignity. We are created in God's image. We possess a kind of life 
therefore, that is not merely biological. And there's a divine light that's been bestowed upon us. Because we were created not merely to exist, not merely to pass the time and then return to the ground, but we were created for love and dignity and goodness and God consciousness. We are meant to see all of what is good and and true and wise, all dignity, all hope, all love is, is life and light that comes from Jesus. Anything in this world that is good can be traced to him. It's his life and light bestowed upon the world. And then finally, in verse 5, salvation. John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, Here's the first mention in John of a problem. We get all the way down to verse 5 before we realize there's a problem, and he calls it, Darkness, And this is not the last time in John that we're going to see this problem of darkness, of sin. See, despite our creation as image bearers of God, we are sinners living in darkness. And it is a thick darkness. Any light that is in us by virtue of our creation is a light that is is barely flickering at best. There's darkness even in the light because of human sin. We are rebels who are far from God. That's the clear message of the scripture. And yet, verse 5, the light shines, present tense, shines in the darkness. The true light, that is Jesus, invades the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, now that word, that final word, comprehend, it's really, it's better translated overcome. And maybe your Bible, uh, most, most Bible translations translate it as overcome. And really that's the best. Because what's being communicated here, the light, Jesus himself, shines into the darkness of a sinful world. And the sin, the darkness, did not overcome it, could not overwhelm the light. And this is John's first statement of a problem, right, darkness, but it's also his his first clear statement of why this book is called a gospel. Gospel means good news. And the first very clear word of good news is this, that light shines into the darkness. If John had stopped merely by saying, uh, God is life, God is light, Well, man, that's wonderful. And we could ponder what all that means till the cows come home. But it's not necessarily good news. The light is only good news if it shines on us, if it shines in the darkness. Life, the life of God, that's only good news for us if that life is bestowed upon us, if it's given to us. And therefore, this is truly good news. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and no amount of darkness can eclipse the light. Jesus is the Savior for sinners. Jesus is our Savior. No degree of sin, no amount of sin can extinguish his light. None of it can stand against the light of his grace. 
And y'all, we beat this drum every week, and we will forevermore till kingdom come. His grace is a free gift to those who will turn from darkness to the light of Christ. A free gift to those who simply trust him and his saving love. We receive, John says, we receive life in his name. Y'all, we we began this message uh, talking about our temptation to shape Jesus more into what we want him to be or what suits us better or what looks more like us. And it's such an easy thing to do. And I want to give us some grace on this. We all are prone to do this. And uh, part of the reason we're prone to do it is because Jesus did really become a man. I mean, we're going to get to that eventually. The Word became flesh. Jesus freely chose to come and share in our humanity with us. And so it's entirely natural for us to picture him, to think of him as some kind of ideal version of me, of us. But as we've said, and as John has already shown us, it's not sufficient for us to admire Jesus and imitate Jesus only. He's not the ideal version of me. And we should be very glad about that. No, the ultimate aim, our ultimate purpose for living is to worship Jesus as God. To admire him and imitate him, we'll get there. That's appropriate and it's noble and it's right, but it's not enough. If Jesus is God, then we worship him as God. And John wants to make that clear right away. This same John, by the way, wrote the the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And there's a fascinating scene that takes place in chapter 1, where John, in the Revelation, he comes face to face with Jesus. And remember, John followed Jesus for three years. John saw the resurrected Jesus and spent 40 days with him on earth. John spent his life proclaiming Jesus as a personal first-hand eyewitness to the world. But look at what happens when he sees Jesus Christ in glory, he says, with eyes like the flame of fire. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. Wow. John did not high-five his buddy Jesus. When he sees him in glory, he falls down, trembling in worship. Because John knows he's in the presence of Almighty God. And so for for us, as John begins this gospel today, he not only takes us back to the beginning, or really even before the beginning, he also takes us to the highest point of the mountain, I mean, John goes as high up as he possibly can here, right from the start. Because we're meant to see Jesus through this lens, that he is God. He is God. And it's meant to color, it's meant to shape everything else that we see that Jesus does. Everything he does, everything he says, all his miracles, all his movements are the work of God 
among us. He is not an exalted man. He is not an angel stooping down low. He's not some creation of God that we hold in high regard. He is God among us. And so we see it today. He's our creator. He's our life. He's the true light from heaven. And he is the word, the divine word, by which we are able to know God. Do we have any reason whatsoever not to stand in awe and worship him? May we do that now. May we pray. May we sing in awe of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the true light that shines in the darkness. Father, we ask this morning for a clearer and more precious image of Jesus than perhaps what we know. Lord, where we have attempted to picture him, where we have attempted to, uh, to, to shape him, to imagine him, to, where, where we have made assumptions about, uh, this is what Jesus would do in this situation, this is how Jesus would vote, this is what Jesus would care about. And perhaps, Lord, where we do these things in our own minds, there's, there's, there are shreds of truth present. But Lord, bring us to what is ultimate and what is really true, that we cannot bring Jesus down and box him in, and we're not meant to. Help us to see he is God, that he was facing you in the beginning, before there was a universe, Jesus was God. That everything that exists, exists because of him. He's the creator. And he is the life and he is the light. Everything that is good owes itself to him. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus' goodness turned our direction. His light shined into our darkness. Father, give us, um, give us a sense, if only just a little bit, give us a sense of what John felt when he saw the glorified Jesus and fell on his face. That we have every reason to worship him. We have every reason to bow to him. that he is the radiance of God's glory, that he is the image of the otherwise invisible God. Thank you, Father, that when you desire to express yourself to us, to know us and to be known by us, that you did not send us information. You sent us a person. You sent us your son. Let it be, Lord, that we would trust him, that we would, yes, admire him and imitate him, sure, but above all, that we would worship him. He is the focal point of all the universe for all eternity. Let, it, let Jesus be our focus as well. And so, Lord, with all our hearts, we ask for true, sincere, and pure worship to the one whose light has shone upon us. In Christ's precious name we pray.
Amen.